Well, good morning, Riverside. Let's try that one more time. We still have people come in. Good morning, Riverside. There we go. There we go. People are actually out there and actually paying attention. That's good. Um, Well, as many of you all know, I like to read a lot. Um, I just enjoy reading all sorts of different types of books. Um, Recently, I haven't been able to read as much kind of physical books, and so I've been reading more audio books, which some people think are not reading books. I would consider it reading books. Um, but I kind of do that while I'm on my, my commute or while I'm out walking. I, don't know, I like to have something in the background. And I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. I tend to more prefer listening to audiobooks, but sometimes I'll ask to actually listen to podcasts. Do we have any podcast listeners out here? Okay, a couple people. Generally, I like audiobooks a little better because usually they, take more, they put more time and effort into it. Sometimes podcasts could be thrown together last minute. Um, but there's some good podcasts out there. And, and recently, I've been listening to this podcast um, that's, I think, become more popular, at least in my circles. And it's called um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And basically what it is, is the 12-part podcast. There are five podcasts into it. So I'm waiting till the end to kind of hold out my judgment. But it's chronicling the rise and fall of the church Mars Hill in Seattle. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Mars Hill is a church um, kind of founded by Mark Driscoll in in the Seattle area, became really popular, kind of grew really fast, and then kind of crashed and fell really quickly. And so they're kind of chronicling that and processing through what happened with that. And it's not just about Mark Driscoll and kind of Mars Hill, but it's also about how in Christian culture is this possible that we can have a church that becomes really huge and popular and influential and then crashes and kind of burns. Um, and so I, I'm interested in it because I used to read a couple of uh, Mark Driscoll's books. I used to listen to his sermons, and he was influential in kind of my area. And so I've been following along for the past five weeks, and each, each time everyone's always anticipating the release of the next one and what's going to happen next. Um, but it's been interesting and insightful. Um, but what's fascinating is as I was w- looking through it, the kind of tagline is this. Here's a little excerpt from the tagline. It says this. It's a podcast about the church and its charismatic founder, Mark Driscoll, that had a promising start, but the perils of power, conflict, and Christian celebrity eroded and eventually shipwrecked both the preacher and his multi-million dollar platform. What I want to focus in on is those three words that I've highlighted, or three phrases, power, Christian celebrity, and multi-million dollar platform. You know, another way of saying that would be power, money, and fame. And this is something that the world seeks after, right? You, you give anybody three wishes, they're going to probably ask for some form of money or some form of power or maybe some form of fame or reputation. Um, and yet that's something that has crept into the church and that we as Christians are not sort of insulated from. We can be tempted by power and by money and by fame, um, but it's not something that is um, coming from scripture. It's coming from elsewhere. So I, I like looking at book, book lists and I was looking through kind of the top selling book lists. And if you look at the top selling self-help book lists, this is some of the top 15 or 20 I think that you find. A book like Think and Grow Rich. Um, rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, how to Win Friends and Influence People. Or this is the 48 Laws of Power. I've actually been recommended a couple of these and read one or two of them by people in the past. Um, And what it shows is that we as a people, especially in America, we love power, we love riches, and we love fame. And all of us, if we're really maybe honest with ourselves, kind of want some aspect of that. It's a kind of natural temptation. And what I wanted to talk about this morning is I want to look at these three aspects and compare them to Christianity. So we're going to continue our series on the Gospel of John. Um, We've titled this The Science of Life. This is my last message in this series. And I've titled this message this morning, The Cost of Discipleship. We're in John chapter 11, verses 55 through chapter 12, verse 11. We're kind of spanning over two chapters um, and a little bit of that. And we're going to look at the cost of discipleship. And what I want to do in looking at the cost of discipleship is I want to address three things that the cost of discipleship is for those of us who are believers of Christ. What cost does God call us to 
And then this is not exhaustive, this is not all of the cost of discipleship. But in this passage specifically, I think it talks about the cost of giving up power, the cost of giving up money, and the cost of giving up reputation. And I hope you'll see in this account, there's gonna be three characters specifically that we're gonna look at, and each of them is gonna demonstrate one of these aspects. Two of them are gonna be negative things that we don't wanna follow, this is how not to be a discipleship, and then one is gonna be hopefully a positive example of discipleship. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. And I'm gonna do something that I've done in the past. I'm gonna ask everyone to stand up for the reading of God's word. this is something that a lot of the uh, Jewish leaders used to do. We see this in some, some passages in Ezra and other places where they stand up to give honor to the reading of God's word. And so I want to say that. I'm going to read the passage, and you can read along with me, or you can listen. And afterwards, I'm going to say, thanks be to God for the reading of his word. And if you believe that this is God's word, you can say amen. And then we'll sit and continue. So John chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You can be seated. So we're coming to a passage that talks about the anointing of Jesus. Um, And if you're familiar with this, you're familiar that this account or some version of this account kind of shows up in all four of the Gospels. Um, and initially, I did a lot of research and study on this. If you know me, you know I love looking into this and the academic portion of this, and I spent a lot of time, and I wanted to create a chart showing all the differences and talking about why some people think that three of these accounts are the same or two of these accounts are the same or something are all the same account, and I just realized some of y'all will be interested in that, but maybe not all of y'all, and so I'm just going to skip over that. If you're interested, if you love talking about these kind of things, please come talk to me because literally I will talk forever about this and we'll have a a lovely conversation. If you have questions about this, um, feel free to do that. But basically what you need to know, I'll give you a quick summary of all of my research. There's four accounts. There's one account here um, in John chapter 12. There's also an account in Matthew and Mark. And most people assume the accounts in Matthew and Mark are the same account. Pretty much everyone says that they're really, really similar. Um, then there's also a count in Luke. In Luke, it's in chapter 7. Um, in Matthew, it's chapter 26. and Mark, it's chapter 14. Some scholars think that John, Matthew, and Mark are all talking about the same account. They're both happening kind of in this Passover week, except there's different days that they're talking about. And so that's where people think there's some differences. Most people think that Luke is a totally different account. And the difficulty is, John's the only one who mentions a name. All the other ones don't mention a name. They just say a woman anoints with perfume, and they have different details. Personally, here's where I land. This is not the gospel truth, but I think John, Matthew, and Mark are all talking about the same event, and they just emphasize different things. And Luke is talking about something that's different. But again, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk more about that. I've probably spent too much time on it. But one thing I want to do is 
one of these things that comes up when we have these passages that have kind of discrepancies or seem to not really harmonize really well in the four Gospels is some people start saying, well, look, you can't trust the Gospels, right? This is saying one thing, and this seems to say the other thing, and there's no chance that there's going to be three different anointings that are all the same details or all have these different details. And so what's happened is this story has just gotten mixed up, and this, you know, Mark didn't know what was going on, or John didn't know, and so he just threw this story in, but he gets the details wrong, and you can't really trust the Gospels. They've just been edited and compiled and worked through all the time. And I want to tell you that's actually not true that we can trust the Gospels. And the fact that we have four Gospels actually helps us trust the reliability of the Gospels. And I want to point you to one reference. If you, want to, if you really like this, I want to point you to one book that's kind of the definitive work on this. And that's this book by Richard Bauckham called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's not a book for everyone to read. It's like 500 pages. I haven't actually made my way all, through all of it. But it's kind of the definitive work that talks about this. And basically what his point is, he's going through and trying to communicate that these Gospels act as if they are eyewitness accounts. They're not things that were written down much later. They're not compiled. Each of these Gospels is from a unique eyewitness testimony. And that's really important to understand and to see the reliability of the Gospels, right? Because if we just had one sort of Gospel that told about Jesus then we may not understand all the different facets and the different perspectives. And so what he does is he talks a lot about John, because John is one of those, those gospels that's often in question, that, that people think is compiled later. It's one of the last ones that was written. Um, and he says, he points all these different things. He looks at like history, and he shows how, um, how this historically, based on historians and other things, it, it reads like an eyewitness account. He actually talks to a forensic detective, I guess is what you would call them, and, and the forensic detective says it's actually better that there's some different details. That shows that these are actually eyewitness accounts. Because he says, if I get four people who come to me and they have the exact same story, I'm not going to believe them. Because I think they're, they've gotten together and they've talked about it and they've worked out all the kinks and the details. So when somebody comes with an eyewitness account, generally there are some different details because we all notice something different. And so in the four Gospels, we have that. And they're all going to see different events, and they're going to point out different things. And later, I want to show you some specific things that John points out because he's trying to communicate something powerfully in this passage. And that's why he points out some different things from Matthew and Mark. They can be harmonized. They're the same event that they'll be talking about. But Matthew and Mark are trying to emphasize one thing, and, Jesus, or, and John's trying to emphasize something different. And it makes a difference in the passage. And that's why it's really important we don't just teach through a kind of harmony of all the Gospels. We teach through each Gospel itself. That's why I love the Gospel of John specifically, because what he is communicating is powerful. Okay, I've done way too much time on that. Some of y'all are, you can wake up now, and you can come back, and we can talk about this. Some of y'all want me to keep talking, I hope, maybe one or two of y'all, um, but I've lost my place. So let's get back into the passage. Um, the basic summary is you can trust the Gospels. Read a 500-page book if you want to trust it, but you can, you can really trust the Gospels. And let's have a conversation later. We come to this account of Jesus and Mary anointing Jesus um, kind of in this last week. And it's important that we know the context of what's happening. And I've said this over and over again, as we go through John, we read almost chapter by chapter, right? And we stop. And so this passage, I'm actually taking a little bit of chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 12 because chapters didn't show up until about the 16th century, I think. Um, and so originally you would read this whole passage. And so it's important for us to understand the context. And the one key thing that you need to remember in this passage specifically is what has just happened in chapter 11. Can anybody remember? What was chapter 11 about? Somebody can shout it out. It's the death and resurrection of Lazarus. That's so key and important. And notice how many times John mentions the resurrection of Lazarus, who was dead. He's making all these connections in this passage. So you remember, it's important that John has put this story, he's put this account specifically right here to communicate something right next to the raising of Lazarus. And this is important because all throughout John's gospel, he is making a point about seven different signs. Um, and so we've listed them all, and people count these differently. I tend to count that the sixth sign in this book of signs is the raising of Lazarus, and the last sign is the resurrection of Jesus. Some people put another, I think him walking on the water is the other one that some people put in there, but I think this is the best way to read it, in the way that, that I think John is communicating. And so we have to recognize 
this story of the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 is in the background of this anointing of Jesus. So that's kind of all the background. Let's go ahead and get into the passage looking at first chapter 11, verse 55. And in this first section, I'm going to go quickly on these first two sections because I want to spend the most time on this last section. Um, so starting in verse 55, I'm going to talk about the cost of discipleship and how one of the things that God calls us to is giving up power, starting in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. It talks about that in Numbers. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, remember the context. Part of this is because after Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the kind of Sanhedrin, the ruling council, decided we're going to try to plot to kill Jesus. And so they're looking for him. In fact, it'll say that right here. But this Passover festival is one of the feasts, one of the festivals that all the Jews would go up to Jerusalem where the temple is. It was a key thing for all the Jews to come. And so they're wondering, is Jesus going to come? It's kind of dangerous for him to come because the Sanhedrin, the council, is going after him. But he's also a good Jew, and so he seems like he should be coming. Now, verse 57. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, Jesus, was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And arrest means kill him. Now, skip over chapter 12 and skip down to verse 9 of chapter 12. We'll come back to the, the actual account of the anointing. But I want you to see how this passage kind of brackets what's going on in the anointing. And oftentimes we miss it because your Bible probably has headings that separate it just like mine does. Those headings weren't in the original uh, manuscript. You just read straight through. So look at verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And I get that. If somebody's raised from the dead, you probably want to see him, see if he's decayed at all, or if he's like a zombie, or I don't know. Like, you want to check it out and make sure, okay, is this really happening? It probably doesn't happen every day that someone gets raised from the dead. So word is spread, and they know he's there, and, and Lazarus is at this meal. So people are, there's a big crowd that's gathered around to kind of figure out what's going on. Now look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, which doesn't really make sense. Like, if Jesus just raised him from the dead, why in the world are they going to put him to death? They think that's going to solve the problem. He gets another resurrection if that happens. But this is how the chief priests and, and, and the leaders are thinking. And this is the important verse. Look at verse 11. Here's why. Here's why they're scared of Lazarus. Here's why they're scared of Jesus. Initially it said because people were believing in him. But this is not just about they're concerned about where people are putting their faith or their trust. Notice what it says in verse 11. Or actually, this is what it says. In verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what they're afraid is they're losing their influence with people. They're afraid that the people who've been following them for a long time, who've been trusting in them, are now going to start following this Jesus guy because he's able to do amazing signs. But it's not just that. And this is, again, where the context is really important. Flip over to chapter 11 and look at verse 47 and 48, because the chief scribe or the chief priests actually tell what they're afraid of in their little conference. They say in verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man, Jesus? He's performing many signs, which is the whole gospel of John. It's about the seven signs that he um, demonstrates. Now look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And that's not fully what they're concerned about. But if people believe in him, look at what it says. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. This is what the leaders are scared of. Not that people are going to believe in Jesus, maybe a little bit, but that their power and their influence is going to be taken away probably from the Romans. Which makes sense, right? Because this is what the world wants. This is what we're taught to want. We want power. We want money. We want fame and influence. And so they're aligning with it. The thing to think about, the thing to process through that we need to be honest with ourselves is at this time, we've got to remember, we read the Pharisees and we think, oh, they're bad people. We think the chief scribes and we think, well, of course I would recognize that they're not really good people. 
But these would have been the pastors and the leaders. These would have been the respected religious leaders of the time, and we forget about that. And these are people who still love power and are longing for power. And it's really interesting that they're afraid the Romans are going to take it away because the Romans are kind of the people who are over them in the first place. And this is what the Romans did. They, they went around and they conquered people and then they would put up kind of local leaders just to keep them in power. But the only reason that the Israelites, these chief priests, had power was because the Romans were over them. Um, so they're afraid of something, ironically. They're willing to have somebody like the Romans over them as long as they have a little power. But what the messianic hope was that eventually the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the Romans and they wouldn't be under that power. But they're so afraid of losing that power, that influence, that they want to kill Lazarus and they want to kill Jesus because of it. And so we've got to be honest with ourselves and we've got to process through. There is a temptation for power. And one of the costs of discipleship, of truly following Jesus, is the willingness to give up power, not to use it for our own self. Now, I could, I could go into examples. Um, I could give you all sorts of illustrations, unfortunately, of churches where people, leaders in churches, pastors, elders, have sought power and used that power. And for some of y'all, all I have to do is talk about the fact that you've came from Harvest. And you know about how power has been misused in the past. And I'm not saying anything bad about Harvest right now, but there's been pastors in the past who have used power negatively. I know some of y'all have experienced that. It's very real. And not just at mega churches, that happens in smaller churches as well. And for the cost of discipleship, for really following Jesus, it is not about gaining power. It is about giving up power. It is about serving. So right now we're we're looking for new elder candidates, and I think actually today is the last day that you can, you can mention it. And so if you, if you want to out there, there's these little elder qualifications, elder candidate process thing going on. Um, if you have any recommendations, send it to somebody. Um, but it's fascinating as you look through this, this list and qualifications. As I was reading through this as I was preparing the sermon, and how many of these qualifications show up. So one of the qualifications for an elder is someone who is not lording it over those whom he leads. But it's actually someone who's eager to serve. And so as we've been talking as elders about, you know, what are we looking for in elder candidates? One of the first things for me and, and for us as elders as a whole is, in general, a big red flag is somebody who wants to be an elder and wants that power. For me, that's a real turnoff. If they're eager and they think, I would be a really good elder and I want to be that and I need the power to make choices and to influence and to lead, for me, I'm really, really skeptical of that person from the get-go. I want to see people who are serving in the background, people who are willing to give up their power and empower other people. That's the kind of elders that I'm looking for and want. Um, but we live in a world that says you've got to take your power. And unfortunately, the church has started to, to imbibe on that, to kind of Take a little bit of that. And I could tell you, you know, story after story of people who, in the church, pastors, have been looking for power rather than to serve. So I spent too much time on this one, but um, one of the costs of discipleship for leaders, but for everyone in the church, is to, to not seek to have power over people, to control people, but actually to serve and use power for the sake of other people. The second thing that uh, I think we need to see is uh, the giving up of money. Um, and so here we're going to look at Judas specifically. Um, so the giving up of money, looking at Judas. And we'll start, um, let's just read from verse 1 of chapter 12. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for them there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so nard came from India. That's why it's so expensive. It comes kind of from the Himalayas. It's the only place you can get it. So getting that from the Himalayas, from India to uh, Israel, takes a little bit of time, especially back then. Um, and that's why it's really expensive. And so notice what Judas is focused on here. Here's another example of, of not what discipleship is. In verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. It's interesting that that's always how he's talked about in the Gospels. Uh, you don't want that behind your name. Um, he, Judas said, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, if you're not familiar, a denarius would have been a typical person's day wage. And so 300 denarius is about a year's wage. And, you know, Jewish culture, you don't work on Sunday, so you get 52 weeks gone. So a couple holidays, about 300 days, that would be a full year's wage, which if we translate to kind of the average wage or so, $30,000, $40,000. So this is a lot of money, right? It seems like a weird thing for her to come and pour all of this on Jesus. And so, you know, some of us might say, well, he's got a point. Like, $30,000, $40,000 could help a lot of people who are poor. But... Notice what is really on Judas's mind. Verse six, John kind of has some commentary. He comes in and, and clarifies. Because just by what he says, we would think, oh man, he cares about money because he cares about the poor. That's a good thing. We should do that. But notice what John says. He gives a little commentary in verse six. He said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, John calls him out, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what he was put into, or what was put into it. So not only is he called a betrayer, but he's also called a thief. In all the other gospels, this kind of epitaph of, of betrayer is always put on, but none of the other gospels call him a thief. But John does. It's the, the word kleptos, which is where we get the word kleptomaniac, um, and it's interesting that this is where he calls him thief because, again, remember the context. John is weaving a, a picture, a narrative, and he is wanting you to recognize when's the last time he's used the word thief? When's the last time he's talked about thief? And that's in chapter 10. The only other place that, that John uses the word thief three times is in John chapter 10. And one of the most prominent ones you can look at is it says, it's comparing the thief and, or the robber to the good shepherd. And it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And it's striking that the thief comes to steal, but also to kill, because we know who Judas is. He's not only the one who's stealing money, he's not only the one that thinks, yeah, 300 uh, denarii, a full year's wage, that's too much to put on Jesus. We should actually use this for the poor, that's what he says, but really he wants the money for himself. But we know later he's gonna take 30 pieces of silver. That's all Jesus is worth in his mind. Not 300 denarii, just 30 pieces of silver. And he's gonna do that willing to let him die. He's not just stealing, he's willing to kill him essentially for that. Now, there's debate about whether 30 pieces of silver is a, equal to a denarii or it's less. But in our kind of day and age, it would probably be between $100 or maybe $3,000 at the most. So that's how much Jesus, or how much Judas is willing to, to betray Jesus for. And it shows where his emphasis is. He cares about money. And so again, we come to the, this cost of discipleship and we see this negative example of somebody who cares more about money than about Jesus. And it's telling too, because it's easy for us to think, well, I don't, you know, I don't care about money, but especially when we talk about money within the church, how many times have people given to a church thinking that that money was going to something good, right? And this is what Judas is saying from, from the external. If, if we don't hear John's commentary, you think, oh, he wants to give money to the poor, and who doesn't want to help with that? And there are a lot of nonprofits, and there are a lot of charities, and there are a lot of churches that take money, and they say, we're using this for the poor, and we're using this for people who need it. And then if you actually look on the inside, it's not actually being used for that. People are taking the money for themselves. So we've got to be really careful. We've got to be careful in our own hearts, because we can deceive ourselves as well, right? Man, I think that God should give me a lot of money, because then I'll give a lot of money to the poor people. I would hope that would be how I would respond, but I don't know, honestly. There's the temptation to want more money, and as you start getting more money, you kind of up your, your level of living, and then you say, well, I'm giving 15, 20, 30%, you know, as you could do more, and you think, yeah, I'm really caring about the poor, but there's this constant desire for more and more and more. And so scripture tells us that for those who are disciples of Jesus, the cost of discipleship is giving up money. And again, if you look at this elder qualification, that's one of the qualifications if you go down through it. One of it says, not a lover of money. 
because that's really important because money is a huge temptation. You cannot serve God and money. Um, you know what somebody really loves and cares about by what they spend their money on. Where your money is there, your treasure will be also. Uh, it also says that an elder is not to be pursuing dishonest gain. And again, I won't tell you a ton of stories, but I know of pastors who have had people who have a lot of money in their congregation use that to influence them. In fact, I recently talked to a friend who was working on a sermon series, and as he was working on a sermon series on the kind of direction of where things were going to go, somebody who was in the congregation, had a lot of money, came and said, I think you should go this direction. And he said, I don't think that's what the passage is talking about. I can't in good conscience talk about this specific thing. And the guy said, you know, I can lose you your job. Um, he had enough money that he could push him out. Uh, thankfully, my friend didn't do that. But that happens a lot more than we'd like to admit. People with money are able to use their power to push things around. And that's one of the dangers. I think that's one, one of the reasons why, why um, Paul talks about, you know, um, being a tent maker because then he's not beholden to the money of anybody else. And there's some benefit to that. And so as we look for elders, we want people who are not beholden to money, but it also is a challenge for us. It's not just for the leaders in the congregation. One of the costs of discipleship is giving up money. And then finally, um, the positive example is giving up our reputation. And this, we see this with Mary, and, and it's beautiful. And I want to point to some details. We're just going to stay in the first three verses of chapter 12. Um, but there's so many details that John brings out that are really powerful that show you uh, just amazingly how Mary is responding and how she is giving up a lot. Look at verse 12, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, again, here in the back of your head, Lazarus raised from the dead. Lazarus was dead. There's this repetition, and John wants you to know this account is happening right next to Lazarus being raised from the dead, probably about a month away. So, most likely, this is a celebration dinner because Lazarus is now alive, and so Mary and Martha and Lazarus are really thankful that Jesus raised him from the dead, and this is kind of a celebration dinner um, in Bethany. Now, notice verse 3, and this is where we'll, we'll sit for a little bit. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I want to just focus on a couple of details here. Um, now, the first thing is, is this detail. It's actually in chapter 2, but this detail of them reclining at table. Because the first thing is, we're, we're thinking about if they're having dinner, what, how in the world is this happening? How is she going to go and anoint his feet? That seems kind of weird, right? Because we tend to think of, like, the Last Supper. We think of them eating at a dinner table like this. So she has to like crawl under the table to anoint him. And so like that's weird and maybe it's private or I, we don't really know what's going on. But this is not an accurate representation of how they would have been eating. Um, they would have been, like the passage says, reclining at table. So here's a, from about the 300s, this is a Roman um, person's, I think a lawyer's um, uh, tomb. And so here's a picture you can see they're reclining. You can barely just see their feet there. So they were reclining towards the table with their feet out on the outside, which means it's pretty easy to anoint somebody's feet. Actually, I didn't notice this until I had put the slide up, but in Richard Bauckham's um, book, you can see this is probably the Last Supper where they're you know, at a round table and you can see them kind of, you know, the perspective's all weird, but um, <laughs> I don't know if people were bad, worse artists back then. I don't even know actually when this comes from, but I couldn't find the photo. But um, this is probably something like what's happening. They're all reclining around this. So it makes sense for Mary to go and to anoint the feet. But here's where I want you to notice that specific detail. Because in Matthew and Mark, they both say they anoint the head. And people will say, well, well these accounts are conflicting, right? There's a couple of factors that have to go into this. One, they use, they're using a pound of incense, a pound of perfume, which the Roman pound would be about 11 and a half ounces, 12 ounces, so that's like a Coke can, or for y'all northerners, a pop can, or soda can, whatever it is you use. Um, 
the improper use of whatever that is. You get the idea though, this is 12 ounces, so if someone's gonna pour that all on somebody's feet, that's a lot to pour on the feet. So most likely what happens is Mary is anointing all of him. And this is kind of a typical practice because when you come in to eat, um, and this is where the, the part about feet is gonna become important, when you come in to eat, you've been walking through all kinds of muck and mire, and your feet are stinky, and you're stinky, and you're gonna be eating in close quarters next to other people, and so you wanna smell good. So it was pretty common for them to kind of anoint somebody on the head a little bit with some perfume to mask out all of that odor. They didn't have deodorant back then, so this is how they kinda do it. But notice specifically some of the details that John points out. John doesn't just say, he's not saying, well, he didn't, you know, she didn't anoint the head. He's focusing on the feet because the feet are theologically important in this passage. He's making a point. There's a couple of connections I want you to see. First of all, in chapter 13, do you know what's happening in chapter 13 of John? That's where Jesus is going to be washing the disciples' feet. Because this is a common practice. When you come in, your feet are dirty, and so somebody needs to wash the feet so they're not smelly. And generally, it was the servant who did it, but Jesus shows humility. And so Mary is actually kind of doing something like that before Jesus commands all of his disciples to do that. She's anticipating that in a sense and showing the cost of discipleship. She's willing to humble herself. But there's also more than that. Notice she's using his feet, which are the bottom, the kind of humble portion, right, that are dirty. And she's using her hair to wipe his feet. Now, for a woman in this culture, you don't generally let down your hair. I think actually... For, for Jewish people till, till today, I, I don't know if Stephen Kaufman's here, but he'll maybe correct me. Um, but I think to this day, a lot of women will still wear a wig that covers their hair or they will wear something covering their hair because you don't let your hair down except for your husband. That's kind of, you know, it's seen as your glory. It's very special and you want to take very careful care of it. So what she's doing is she's letting down her hair in the midst of all these other men, which would have been sort of scandalous. I don't know how scandalous it would have been, but it would have been something that would have kind of been kind of outrageous. It would not have been something that somebody would have done. So what she's doing is she's acting with abandon. She's washing his feet with this expensive perfume and she's using her hair, but this is the, the kind of the, you know, the passage that talks about that the, the woman's hair is, is her glory. She's using the most honorable part of her body to wipe the most kind of dishonorable part of his body which is showing the picture of her letting go of her reputation, letting go of what everybody else thinks about her and going down to his feet. But there's even more than that for Mary. Because can you think of another place in the Gospel of John where feet have been mentioned? Specifically in context with Mary. Maybe John chapter 11? Just before this, in John chapter 11, Mary came to Jesus while Lazarus was still dead, and she saw him, and she fell at his feet. So there's a real key, important reason why this is mentioned, because the feet are of a very important place of where he is. And so now she's, out of thanksgiving, when she fell at his feet, weeping before, now out of thanksgiving, she's pouring out this expensive ointment for him, this expensive perfume, to demonstrate that. But there's even more context in this. Again, if you go back to John chapter 11, there's another thing that mentions up in here. Notice what John says in verses three, the last sentence. It says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Was there a place maybe in chapter 11 that aroma was mentioned? Not the good kind of smelling aroma. When Jesus comes up to Lazarus' grave, Martha says, you can't go in there because he's been dead three days. There is going to be an odor. So all this comes into this to show how meaningful this is, how much is wrapped up in this small act. And this act that is so small actually becomes something that everybody in the room participates in. The aroma fills the room. She's so willing to give up of her reputation to humble herself that it impacts everyone around her. This is what true discipleship really looks like. And what's even fascinating too is when you put it right up next to the, the, the picture of Lazarus, I don't know if this is true, but I, I, I heard a, a preacher talk about this and I think he's actually right. He's the first one I've, I've ever heard mention this, but he suggests that, he asked the question, why would, Martha, or why would Mary have this expensive ointment bottled up and saved? 
You know, it's a really expensive, probably an heirloom that's been passed down. But why would you have so much of this perfume and why would you still have it around? And what he suggests is possibly this perfume was meant for Lazarus because Lazarus had been stinking and smelling. And so to cover that up, they would anoint them with perfume and spices. That's what's going to happen to Jesus later on in John chapter 19. So there's an emotional connection to this possibly even. This is her recognizing this person, Jesus, has raised my brother who I loved and care about so much that this thing that I was saving possibly for him, I'm going to expend and use on Jesus himself. And it shows how much she values Jesus and how much she's willing to give up for him. And it also shows how she's not concerned about what anybody else thinks. She wants to give her thanksgiving and praise to Jesus. And yet, because of that, everybody else in that room is aware of it. In, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus says something that he doesn't say here. He says, whenever the gospel is preached, this woman will be mentioned. John doesn't say that, but I think his way of saying that is saying that that aroma of that perfume has filled the whole room. That when we see and recognize the full cost of discipleship, even though it may be at a great cost to us, it will impact people around us. That's not the reason why Mary is doing this, but it is a result of it. And so again, um, when I think of of elder candidates or I think through and process through this, one of the things that um, comes up in this list is that they are supposed to be someone who has a reputation with outsiders. But in this passage specifically, it's talking about, in a sense, you know, giving up your reputation for those who are disciples, who are alongside of you. And unfortunately, again, in the church, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we go into the church and we're concerned about what other people think of us, right? We want to be presented in the best light as possible. And maybe we don't care what people outside of the church think of us, but we care what people inside the church think about us. But the cost of discipleship is to come up and to say, I am so enraptured with Jesus. I am so thankful for what he has done for me that I'm willing to give up money. I'm willing to give things that are precious and emotional to me. Uh, I'm willing to not care what all the disciples or other people around might think of me letting my hair down. I'm willing to get on my knees and take the most honorable part of my body and put it on the most dishonorable part of his body because I love Jesus so much. He's so valuable to me. This is the call, the cost of discipleship. And so I want to just give you kind of three admonitions um, as a church around these things. Um, and they're, they're simple and brief, um, but the admonition first is, is that power over people is going to corrupt. Don't seek power over people, but rather seek to transform people by empowering them or by serving them. It may seem like you can make a lot more of a difference if you have power, if you have authority, if you get a a reputation, but the gospel shows that the way to really transform, the way for that aroma to fill the whole room is actually by serving people. And that's a challenging thing. That's part of the cost of discipleship. Secondly, I want to challenge you to use your money for the sake of God and others and not for yourself. And and maybe you don't have a lot of money, um, but use your time and your talents. But I do want to say, and I want to challenge you um, to use your money specifically. And I don't mean just use your money to give the money to the church. Um, this is my last Sunday here, so not that I don't care about the church after this. But give money to something because the act of giving money actually releases that power from you. And so even if you have a little bit of money, I want to challenge you to give some somewhere whether it's this church or another church or some charity or some organization that's going to use it well, and that will get rid of that lure of power as you slowly get rid of that money in a sense. Um, But if not, use your time and your talents. There's ways to do that. I want to challenge you and admonish you as a church to do that. And then finally, I want to challenge you and encourage you to be so focused on Jesus and loving him well that it brings a fragrant aroma to everyone else. And you, you honestly, it's not that you don't care about what other people think, that you're not thinking about what other people think. And so um, I'm going to do something that maybe is a little different, but this is my last sermon, and so I get the chance to do that. Um, 
I want to just bless you as a congregation and share, not in detail, but the ways that I've seen some of these things happen. I'm going to get emotional doing this. Um, but it's my last Sunday, so let's go for it. Um, I have seen people at Riverside, and I could name names, who have given of their money even when it cost them. I've seen people give up their money when I know they could have used it for their family. And they've given to this church and they've given other ways. And I could tell you names and it's beautiful and it's a fragrant aroma. I still think of the people that have done that on multiple occasions. I keep learning more of different people that are doing that. And so I want to encourage you, Riverside, that there are people who are doing this. Um, I want to encourage you also that I know people who are serving sacrificially. Who are serving behind the scenes, not because they're getting honor or reputation. I can tell you honestly about the leaders of Bible studies, the leaders of home groups, the leaders who are deacons, who are serving behind the scenes. I can tell you about the elders who are not trying to use power or authority for their own sake, but they're giving it up for the sake of others. Let me just tell you honestly, um, one of the reasons that I came to pastor here at Riverside was after meeting with the elders. Um, I remember meeting back with them in the, in the conference room, and I was still trying to decide, you know, you're, you're both kind of feeling each other and trying to figure out what's going on. Do you, do you, is this a fit? Will this work? And I, I went into that meeting one night, and I met with all the elders, and we met way too long. It was like 1 o'clock by the time we left, which is unfortunately more typical for elders. That doesn't mean you shouldn't want to be an elder candidate. <laughs> We've gotten better. They've gotten a lot better, honestly. But I left that meeting, and I said, I know these men love Jesus and they are not seeking power. They are seeking to serve. And I believe that then and I believe it now still. So I want to tell you, your elders care about you. And I've been in so many meetings where we have prayed and wrestled and thought through how do we love and serve and care for this congregation and steward the authority and power that God has given us well. And so I want to encourage you in that. I see that at Riverside. And there's other things I could talk about. I could talk about people who I know care about following Jesus more than what other people have thought about them. And they've actually taken hits to their reputation because of it. I could list names for you. I could tell you about how this is a welcoming uh, congregation. You're going to talk to a bunch of people when you show up. You can't just sneak in and sneak out, which for an introvert like me, I kind of wanted that. But it's, it's actually beautiful. Push into that for those of you who are in, introverts. I can tell you about becoming a church that's passionate about prayer, that there are people who are praying before the service, and there are people afterwards who are committed to praying after the service, and I think that's beautiful. I can tell you about people who are walking with people through hard things, really, really hard things, whether it's a health crisis or whether it's difficulties in their marriage or whether it's just difficult things that they're going through personally and emotionally. And so I want to encourage you, Riverside. Riverside's not a perfect church. Trust me, as a pastor and elder, I know that everything is not perfect here. But I want to encourage you and bless you that things are, that there are many people who are living as disciples here. And I'm encouraged by that. And I want to admonish you to continue to that. Keep giving up your love of money. Keep giving up the power for the sake of other people. Keep giving up your reputation for the sake of other people. Keep loving Jesus so much that it brings an aroma around, excuse me, and here's how I want to close, because I don't want you to get a big head about yourself. Um, I want to close by looking at Jesus. And the final thing that I want to show you is this, really quickly, the cost to Jesus. Because here's really what the cost of discipleship is. I could talk about all the good things I see, but it's not about the cost disciples here have made, even though there has been costs and things that people have given up. The ultimate cost of discipleship has come from Jesus. And you see this in this passage powerfully. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. And we'll finish here. In verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. And what Mary doesn't really recognize, this passage, this this. Verse 7 is actually really hard to translate in the Greek because it's really confusing. But what seems to be happening here is Mary, kind of like Caiaphas in chapter 11, doesn't realize what she's doing. She doesn't realize that she's actually kind of anointing Jesus for his burial. But Jesus knows it. Because all up to this passage in John chapter 11 and all through this passage, this is the point in John's gospel where he is going to the cross. Chapters 1 through 10 take place in about three, maybe three and a half years 
But this is the point. John, Jesus, literally in the next couple of verses, is going to be, do the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The rest of John, the rest of the 10 chapters in John, are all about his last week moving up to his death. And so the cost of discipleship for Jesus was great. And when we think about these three things, imagine God himself coming to earth. Imagine someone who has all the power, who created everything by the power of his word, right? And coming as a baby, the most helpless, powerless thing possible. And yet this is the cost that Jesus paid that we might come to know him. Imagine the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who owns everything, who made it. And he comes and he's born as a poor Israelite where his parents have to pay the cheapest tax at the temple because they don't have money. Imagine the God himself who has all the glory and all the fame and one day every knee is going to bow and recognize who Jesus is coming and being mocked and humiliated and dying on a cross as a common criminal. And you see the cost of discipleship. You see the cost to Jesus that we might know him, that we might even have a relationship with him. So when you think about the cost of discipleship, don't focus so much on the cost it is for you because the cost it is to you is so little compared to what Jesus has given. And what you see in the gospel and what I wanted to do every single time I preach is point you to Jesus and the beauty of what he has done for you, that he is not asking you to do something that he has not done himself. And the motivation for you to be willing to give up money and power and reputation is because Jesus did it in a greater way than you can ever imagine. And so my hope is you look at Jesus and like Mary, you want to thank him. You want to give whatever you can to express your gratitude, your love for him. And in doing that, you do that for people around you as well. That fragrance will pass on, fill the room. Fill not only this church, but fill out and spill out into other places. And that's what I hope you, uh, as my last sermon, my last message, I hope that's what you see. I hope that's what you get. I hope you see Jesus You see the beauty of the cost that he has paid for you and that makes you willing to pay any cost for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and God, we admit the temptation, even in the church, um, to want power, to want money, to want fame. I admit that for my own self, there's, there's a temptation for that, even as a pastor. I could be envious of other pastors who have bigger platforms or have more money or book deals or um, more power or influence. And yet, um, in this passage, you show us the cost of discipleship. And you show it not just through the chief priest and through Judas and through Mary, but you show it in Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid the greatest cost. And we pray that that will transform us as we remember that cost today as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that transforms our hearts. We thank you for that. We we don't deserve it, and yet you gave it because of your love, because of your care for us. So I pray that we would be able to respond now with a a song of worship and, and communicate how valuable you are to us, how much we're willing to give for your sake and for your glory and for your honor, because everything is due to you. Pray this all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and for the glory of the Father.